You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we come near to you by Christ, our Savior, who brings us into your divine presence. And we trust that he and the Spirit of God intercede for us even now. We pray, God in heaven, that as we seek to make much of him, that he would make himself known to us, that his truths and his precepts would become more clear to us, and our doubts would fade away and be replaced with assurance. And we pray that you would strengthen your people this morning. For those who are in sin, please convict them, bring backsliders home, save sinners, strengthen your church, your people, anoint the hearing and the preaching of your word, give us the Holy Spirit to the uttermost, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So here we are in Matthew 28, Christ has died, he rose again, the two Marys encountered Jesus. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and the religious leaders and the Roman guards have now collaborated to spread lies, saying that the disciples stole the body. It was a lie that breaks down, doesn't make any sense. How do they know they stole the body? They don't know if they were asleep. And so... Their lives fall apart, but today the text takes us back to Galilee for a reunion and for what we call the Great Commission. So this is the Great Commission. Divide the Great Commission up into two Sundays. You like Matthew so much, I'm sure you're happy that we have one more Sunday in Matthew's gospel at least, and but there is a lot to, to deal with in, these, in this passage, so we're, we'll be here for at least two weeks. Today I'll look at verses 16 through 18, and then next week, God willing, verses 19 through 20. Again, this is the Great Commission. The sermons will somewhat bleed into one another. So next ser- Sunday's sermon will be based on this one, and this one will lead us into next Sunday's. But the emphasis today is on the authority of Christ, and next week the emphasis is on the authority of the church to carry out the mission of Christ. But all of this authority, especially the authority of the church to carry out the mission of Christ, is predicated on the authority of Jesus Christ, which is proclaimed today. Today we learn about it, Kim. And the main point this morning that I want you to get out of this is that despite what the religious leaders thought, and despite what Rome claimed, 
Christ has authority over all. All. So there's not a square inch of this earth or this universe that doesn't belong to Jesus. And so that includes you. Have you fully submitted to Christ's authority? Have you? Because he is the rightful authority over all and over you. And I didn't ask you whether you submitted 99% of yourself to Christ. I asked, have you submitted 100%? There's no room for withholding 1% from Jesus Christ. All. He is the rightful authority. So if you're holding on to a fraction for yourself, that renders you a traitor in God's kingdom. Matthew would have you know, the Holy Spirit would have you know, Christ himself would have you know that it all belongs to him. And God's people ought not hold anything back, for by doing so they show themselves hypocrites. So despite what the religious leaders thought, and despite what Rome claimed, Christ has authority over all. Here's the main point. Divide it up into three sections. We see, first of all, the reunion with Christ. Then we see the worship of Christ. And then the claim of Christ. The reunion, the worship, the claim. One, two, three. The reunion, the worship, the claim. And when that's all said and done, we'll get to some very important and very relevant application. The reunion, the worship, the claim. Let's look at the reunion with Christ. The reunion, this is where we start. The 11 disciples go to Galilee to meet Jesus in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Jesus, in fact, said, chapter 26, verse 32, that's where he would meet them. So before he died and was crucified, before his mock show trial, long before the resurrection, he predicted all of it. And in Matthew 26, verse 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So we come to this reunion today in Galilee having already heard the prophecy of Christ in chapter 26, that there will indeed be a reunion in Galilee. That despite the disciples having scattered, despite Peter's threefold denial, there will be a reunion. And Jesus told Mary and the other Mary that. In fact, the angels told the Mary, Mary and the other Mary that in chapter 28, verse 7. The angel said, then go quickly... And tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. The reunion with Christ in Galilee. Chapter 28, verse 10, Jesus says 
they should go to Galilee. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So, he predicted this reunion in Galilee before his death, and then the angel and Jesus himself told Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to go to Galilee for this reunion after his death and resurrection. So we've been anticipating this moment for some time, Galilee, the reunion with Christ in Galilee. And Galilee is very significant. It's an important place for this reunion because most of the disciples would have had homes there. That's where they lived. Jerusalem wasn't their home. It was Galilee, this northern region of Judea. It's what the fancy people from Jerusalem would have considered the redneck backwoods area of Judea. That's where the hillbillies lived. And so they're back up in the north country in Judea, of Judea, in Galilee. And that's where the disciples had their homes. Some were fishermen, as you know. And so they'd left businesses behind there. Their families were there. The people they grew up with were there. Their aunts, their uncles, their cousins were there. Back in Galilee. And so the word Galilee has a sweet ring in their ears. It's a familiar place. It's not like the busy, big city of Jerusalem. There's familiarity there. It's home. It's where they played as children. It's where they went to school. It's where they learned their trades. It's where they first met Jesus. Galilee. And that's where they're going for this reunion. They had deep roots in Galilee. That's where they go for their reunion. If we divide the Gospel of Matthew into the Galilee section and the Jerusalem section, the time in Galilee is much more lengthy and the time in Galilee is much more happy. Spent about a week in Jerusalem at the end of his life. Believe it or not, I've been preaching through that week for about a year and a half, but it was about a week. It may not seem that it was about a week when he came in on the, with the triumphal entry. But the majority of his ministry and the majority of our time in Matthew has been in Galilee, and that's where they are today for this reunion. It was a happier place for Jesus. That's where the disciples ate with Jesus. He multiplied the fish and the loaves on the grass. That's where Jesus performed many miracles. The most of his miracles were performed in Galilee. His power was demonstrated. He healed the blind and the lepers and forgave sinners, and he preached the kingdom of God. In Galilee, this is where they, he first started his preaching ministry. The first sermons were preached and, and heard in Galilee. The crowds flocked to Jesus in Galilee, but unlike the Jerusalem crowds that wanted him killed, the Galilee crowds wanted to touch him and see him and hear him and be healed by him. It was a happier time. If you notice this last week in Jerusalem, I've been preaching through it about a year and a half, has been a very dark season of Scripture. The sermons and the tone of them can take a very dark turn fast. The absence of, of laughter through the preaching of this time 
demonstrates the fact that there's nothing to joke about about his time in Jerusalem because it's not, for the most part, happy. But Galilee, there's a lightness to it. The crowds flocked to him, and he was better received. In Jerusalem, the crowds wanted him killed, and the religious leaders plotted against him, and he was handed over to Pontius Pilate, and there he was crucified, and there his disciple Judas killed himself, and there his disciple Peter denied the faith three times in Jerusalem. That's not Galilee. Galilee is where the men began to follow him. It's much happier than Jerusalem. It's almost like a dream. If you think of the darkness that came down and slowly descended and finally covered everything in Jerusalem, Galilee is brighter. It's, it's happy. It's happy. It's almost like a dream if it weren't for the fact that it's recorded in Holy Scripture and therefore is a fact of history. You'd think it was a dream, that this is all happening now. Really? We're back to this? This is so happy. The reunion is there. But we notice that in Galilee for this reunion in verse 16, it, talks, it mentions the 11 disciples went to Galilee. The 11, not the 12. You remember there once were 12, now there's 11. A little poem I found tells us the names of the disciples in rhyme. Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew. Matthew next, and Thomas too, James the less, and Judas the greater, Simon the zealot, and Judas the traitor. That's the 12. But here in verse 16, we have the 11 disciples went down to Galilee. And so you read the 11 instead of the 12, you're reminded of something very dark that has just happened, and that's the suicide of Judas. Killed himself, murdered himself. He, he gave in to the despair that surrounded his sin. And instead of repenting to Christ and finding hope in the gospel of salvation, he, he completely did, did himself in. He went to his own place, as the scriptures say. Judas, the traitor that killed himself. And so there's a level of, of pain, I guess you could say, when you read the 11 came to Galilee for the reunion. But that pain is quickly eclipsed by joy because you do read that 11 came to Galilee. Whereas previously the eleven had scattered. They divided. They'd gone into hiding. They were fearful. In fact, one of those eleven, Peter, had denied the master three times. And so if you're, if you're given to a little despair when you read of the eleven and you're reminded that Judas did himself in, you're also given to an overwhelming sense of joy. Wow, Christ regathered eleven after their complete defection? The eleven came back to Galilee is the sheep came back to the shepherd who were once scattered. The 11 came back to Galilee. 11 of them received the grace of God. 11 of them received mercy. 11 of them were forgiven for their sins. 11. This is good news. This is God's kindness to them. And it's good news for you too. Because if God forgave those cowards... And those defectors, he surely can forgive you. Why don't you come back to the Savior and regather with his flock and truly come and feast upon Christ, the Good Shepherd, and be reunited with our kind Lord, 
who forgives sinners. If those 11 can be forgiven, so can you. Judas didn't receive the free offer of grace, so he went his own way to his own place. But these 11 came back, which is the kindness of God. And we notice that this reunion in Galilee takes place in Galilee, yes, but on a mountain in Galilee. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. This points to a heavenly experience. Because we remember the Sermon on the Mount where the first sermon that Jesus preached after gathering his disciples, it was on a mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, this most beautiful sermon of Christ. It's a rich sermon at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. Well, here they are on a mount in Galilee again. And, and then, of course, we remember of another heavenly experience, not just meeting the Savior in the Sermon on the Mount, but... When, when Peter and John, they, they met him up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there he was. He was transfigured before them, and his, his face glowed like the sun. And they met the Lord, but they didn't just meet the Lord. They met Moses, and they met Elijah up there. And they communed with God himself on a mountain. So this reunion is extra special because not only is it in this sweet place called Galilee, but this reunion is extra special because it's on a mountain, which is... Matthew is using to signify to a heavenly experience. So the Garden of Eden was on a mountain, if you know your Old Testaments well enough. And the temple was built on a mountain. It's the place of communion with God. Closer to the heavens than earth. And so in this heavenly experience, this mountaintop experience, they have this meeting, this reunion with Jesus Christ in Galilee. It's a beautiful scene. The reunion after the division, the restoration after the sin, the reminiscing of better times after the pain of Jerusalem, and the resurrection of our king after his death. Reunion, restoration, reminiscing, and resurrection, all in Galilee, this heavenly experience of reunion on a mountain. It's serene. It's splendid. It's full of wonder. It's, all, it's almost like this dream that you're seeing through a mist. As you peer into this moment in Galilee, there's, you're looking at something that is dreamlike, but it's real. It happened. But after all that these disciples have come through, it's splendid. And it's the perfect ending for this gospel is a reunion on a mountain with 11 disciples in the land of Galilee. That's the reunion. It's the scene's been set. It's the reunion. Let's look at the worship of Christ. I showed you the reunion with Christ, but let's look at the worship of Christ. Second point. At his reunion with his disciples, at the reunion, the disciples behold Jesus. And when they beheld him, they worshiped him. Look at verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I'll talk about their doubting in a moment. But let's focus on the worshiping for a minute. It's a lovely picture of them on this mountain. And the, the picture is, 
is the 11 are gathered on the mountain, this rendezvous point where Jesus directed them to meet him. The 11 are gathered there, there, and then all of a sudden the 11 look up and Jesus starts coming to them. Because look at what it says. And when they saw him, meaning there was a time when they didn't see him, and now they saw him. And then in verse 18, and Jesus came. It could be translated coming, Jesus said. And so the idea is that they've had this place planned and they go there and, and they're waiting to meet Jesus. And finally they look up and the, and the disciples say, there he is. He's coming. And what do they do? They worship him. They caught a sight of Jesus and they worshiped him. They experienced Christ and they worshiped him. There's several times in Matthew's gospel where men worship Christ. This is a common theme and this is really the climax of the worship. But in chapter 2, verse 2, for example, the wise men said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw a star and it rose and we've come to worship him. And that's exactly what they do in chapter 2, verse 11. Or it says, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Chapter 14, verse 33, which I think speaks to today's text, is where Peter doubted and started to sink into the sea. Jesus rescued him. They saw Jesus coming through the storm. And what happens is, is in verse 33 of chapter 14, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. So this is an experience that we've seen before in the Gospel of Matthew, but this is, this is extra special considering everything that's just happened in Jerusalem. And now, they're worshiping is the resurrected Christ, the resurrected Jesus. And it says that some doubted. So they saw this glorious Christ coming towards them, the resurrected Jesus. They worship him and some doubted. Now, what's that mean? What does that mean that some doubted in this moment of worship? Well, you know that all the disciples had different dispositions. They were all different men. You get 11 men together, they're all going to be different. And these were different men, and they were characters, as we've talked about. And something, this simply means they were confused, which it, it could be. And the same word is used, as I mentioned, of Peter, when Peter doubted and started to sink into the ocean, when Jesus was walking on water and he called Peter out to them. Same word is used. But I, I think what's happening here is that there's a level of confusion and wonder and doubt that sets in the moment they see Jesus coming to them. Because remember, they're gathered there, and when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. At what point did they see Jesus? Was he a football field away? Did they see him coming up the mountain from the bottom of the mountain? So they were on the top of the mountain looking over the the cliff, and they see Jesus way down there. Did they see him walking across the valley towards the mountain? At some point, Jesus caught their eye. And so you could imagine as Jesus is climbing the mountain and they're watching him come towards them, and they see him down yonder from a distance, and he becomes clearer and clearer and clearer to their eye. But do you think there was ever a time in that season where they're up there on the mountain and they're waiting for Jesus and then finally they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting and there he is from a distance. Do you think there ever was a time where it crossed their mind, is it really him? Is it him? It's him. But I think you get the impression that is they're worshiping him in this doubting that as he draws closer to them, he offers them assurance in what he says next. Well, let's talk about the worship and the doubting for a moment. 
Because some of you, I know, doubt. You're riddled with doubt. Some of you are new Christians, and you're going through seasons of doubt. You're young, and you go through seasons of doubt. Can I believe him? Is it really him? Is he really resurrected? Should I believe this? You, you doubt, don't you? But what do these disciples do while they're doubting? They worship him. Even with the doubt, they act in faith. And they give Jesus his worship. That should be instructive to you. What do you do when you're doubting? You go to Christ and you worship him. You draw near to the Lord. And look at what happens. They worship him. And they praise Christ. And what does it say? Coming to him, he spoke to them. As they're worshiping, he's drawing nearer to them. And as you're worshiping Christ and as you're giving your heart to Christ in worship, what is going to happen is that over time he will become clearer to you and your assurance will become more grounded, will become stronger. So this ought to instruct you. Some of them worshiped, they worshiped him when they saw him, but some doubted, and Jesus came. So he comes to them while they're worshiping, notwithstanding their doubts. Now let's get back to this act of worship for a moment. Forget about the doubt. I think the worship grows stronger as Jesus comes nearer and the, and the doubt grows weaker as Jesus comes nearer. I think that's the impression we get. But let's get back to the worship. What does it say? They worshiped him. Those words are used at another very important part, an integral part in the Gospel of Matthew. Those words are used in Matthew chapter 4, the word Worship. Matthew chapter 4, if you remember, that is when Jesus is tempted by Satan. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, it says, And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of this world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. Do you see what Satan asked for? On the, this mountain experience in Matthew chapter 4, Satan asks for worship. He asked that Christ would worship him on the mountain. Well, in today's text, Jesus receives what Satan wanted. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan wanted worship. He, he offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world in exchange for worship. Jesus refuses and he says in verse 10 of Matthew 4, because only God should be worshipped, Jesus refuses, and in today's passage, Jesus receives not only what Satan wanted, but also what is reserved for God alone. I hope you're seeing the connection here. Because I think this is an important connection in Matthew. Is it opens with this Satan pleading with Jesus or telling Jesus to worship him, and it closes with Jesus receiving worship. It opens with Jesus declaring that only God should be worshipped, and it closes with Jesus receiving worship. What's Jesus telling us about himself? Is the disciples fall on their faces before him and worship him, and he receives it fully. He doesn't turn it away. The, the Gospel of Matthew opens with Satan offering Jesus the entire world if he would but worship him. And the Gospel of Matthew closes with Jesus receiving the worship of disciples and declaring his supremacy over the entire world. 
In today's passage, Jesus receives not only what Satan wanted, but also what is reserved for God alone. And that's worship. And in being worshipped, he received what Satan wanted and what only God should receive, and is to his claim of deity. What's most telling is that he received it. It's not that he received it, but how he responded to it. So pay attention. You've been following along for three years. You're going to miss the whole thing if you miss this. Okay? What's most telling is not that he received the worship, but how he responded to the worship. We have the reunion. We have the worship. We have the claim. Number three, which is the response to the worship. And I don't think the worship is what's most telling here. I think the response is what's most telling. The claim of Christ at this act of worship. Now, there's parts of the Bible when men attempt to worship angels and angels refuse because they say that worship is for God alone. Men here attempt to worship Christ. He doesn't refuse it, but instead the worship prompts him to draw near to them and speak with this claim. Point three, the claim. He offers this claim. How does Jesus respond to their worship? Verse 18, he claims. Jesus came to them and said to them, making this claim, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, this worship is quite appropriate. He has all authority over the entire universe. This is, he responds to the worship by declaring himself is the king of the universe. The ultimate authority in the entire cosmos, not just over earth, but over angels and hell and heaven itself. And, and these three verbs in verse 18, as is, is Christ is making this claim, are, are really telling because up until now, there's been a lack of clarity because remember, it's like a dream. It's the, there's a misty dream. It's you're looking through the mist as Christ is coming up the mountain and they're watching him approach and they're worshiping him with doubt in their minds. Their minds are full of doubt, but yet they're worshiping him in faith, believing that this is Jesus coming towards them. And then what happens? Well, the, he cuts right through the fog because it says in verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, there's actually three verbs in the Greek which indicate he came, he spoke, and he said. Coming, speaking, he said. And so the idea is that the mover here is, is they're watching Jesus come up while they're worshiping, and there's a lack of clarity in their mind. Jesus all of a sudden steps through the fog to center stage, and the spotlight's on him. And he opens his mouth, and he has something to say. And what does he say? Well, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He responds to worship with a claim to supreme authority, authority that he holds in heaven and authority that he holds in earth, authority over everything. This is his response to the worship. He's claiming deity, godhood. Christ is God in the flesh. This is the man who is God and the God who is man standing before them who has the entire universe at his disposal. 
the master of the entire cosmos is standing before them as they're flat on their face, worshiping them. And you can see how this faith that they have that prompted them to worship despite their doubts is leading to an assurance that comes by the word of Christ. When you're in doubt, you ought to worship him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Which is precisely what happens. And some people want to dismiss Jesus here in the Gospels. Well, he was just a nice teacher. He was a nice moral man that ended up getting himself in trouble with immoral leaders in society. That's how they dismiss him. You, you can't come to a text like this and dismiss him as that. Either Jesus is, is crazy, he's demonic, or he's God. There's your options. He's not just some nice moral man who has a few nice things to say. And the text of Holy Scripture, God himself is presenting to him, uh, to him to us, not as crazy, not as demonic, but as God in the flesh. The, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, he said, only God is to be worshipped. He told that to Satan in Matthew chapter 4 verse 10. Here, Jesus is worshipped. And Jesus doesn't push away the worship. His response to the worship is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He makes that claim this is a bold claim. It's what I'm trying to communicate to you. Jesus receives, remember what Matthew 4, what Satan wanted. And Jesus has what Satan offered. What did Satan want? He wanted worship. What did Satan offer Jesus? He offered them all the kingdoms of the earth, of the world. Took him up on the mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, Jesus, if you worship me, Satan says to him, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Here we are at the end of Matthew's gospel. What's happening? Well, Jesus refused to worship Satan. Well, here Jesus is receiving worship, and he's received all the kingdoms of the world. Not from Satan, but from God himself. Jesus has what Satan offered, and Jesus receives what Satan wanted. Satan wanted worship, Jesus receives worship. Satan offered the world, Jesus has the world. In chapter 4, Satan offered Jesus the world in exchange for worship. Here, Jesus receives worship and has claim to the world. Now, let's talk about his claim for a minute here. As we look at this claim, see what the claim is? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's talk about that word authority. It's an important word. Some of your translations might translate it power. There's two words... Two ways you can look at this word authority or power. There's two types of power. There's two types of authority, at least two. One is the power of brute force. Strength. That's one type. The other is a legal power. Is in the legal right. Or the jurisdiction over. Or the liberty to. That's the other one. So one is the, the, the brute force power. And the other one is the power over, or the right over, or the liberty to, the legal jurisdiction to. So you have those two sides of the term power or authority. Jesus is here claiming the second. The Greek word means that he has the legal right to, or the jurisdiction over, the governmental power over the heavens and the earth is what he's claiming. Josephus used the word 
in his works in the first century, and it typically meant in his works the governmental power of kings, or it's been used in other places, is the absolute power of the king. The connotation is that the nations and, not just the nations, but heaven itself falls under the jurisdiction of Jesus Christ. So a bunch of men gather on a mountaintop to worship Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to the worship? He claims jurisdiction over heaven and earth. It's a very bold claim. And if you look at, I don't, we don't need to turn there, it should come on the screen, but Daniel chapter 7, something very similar happens there where the prophecy of Christ is issued in Daniel 7, verse 14, or verse 13, it says, I'll read verse 14 in a minute, but verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is what Jesus is saying here. He's the, he's the son of man of Matthew 7, the one whose kingdom will never end. And so Jesus responds to these men worshiping him by claiming with this claim that he is legal jurisdiction, legal right, authority over every jurisdiction that exists, heaven and earth and everything in between. Jesus has it. He responds to worship with that claim. Some might think that Christ's kingdom will not come into the last days or the millennium, but here he is claiming that here he is the king of all the heavens and all the earth, declaring himself that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that his kingdom is the supreme kingdom, that he, in fact, at this moment, is the glorified son of man of Daniel chapter 7. All of heaven and all of earth has now at this point, by this moment, been given to him. He declares it. He pronounces it in response to worship. This is important. The disciples meet Jesus on a mountain in Galilee. They worship him. They're confused, but they worship him. And in their confused worship, he moves nearer and nearer and nearer. But he speaks into the doubt with a claim to absolute supremacy, not just over the earth, but over heaven. And if you've been paying attention, and if you know your history well, you've been paying attention through Matthew, or you understand history, you understand that the claim that Jesus just made, where he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, is, a, is the political claim of the Caesar. Caesar thought that he was the ruler appointed by heaven to govern the earth. And he claimed that. In fact, the, Romans, the Roman Caesar cult perceived that Caesar was the God emperor by this point in history. And so when Christ is declaring that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me at this place of worship, he's, he's, he's essentially saying, look, yeah, yeah, Rome put the seal on the tomb, but guess what? I broke it. 
And Rome sent the soldiers to guard the tomb, and guess what? They were thrown on the ground convulsing. And now Christ stands before them, declaring that Rome is under his boot. You thought Caesar was powerful. This is a bold claim, and it has political overtones in first century Rome. He thwarted the Roman guard, and he broke the Roman seal, and Rome itself couldn't keep him in the grave. And in response to the worship, he declares that he has power over all heaven and all earth. And this is, could you imagine the first century Christians as they were persecuted by Rome, and the second century Christians as they were persecuted by Rome, and the third century Christians as they were persecuted by Rome, and Rome trying to cajole them or force them, pressure them into declaring Caesar is Lord, or getting them to do their little pinch of salt or burn their incense is an act of worship to the Roman emperor. And as this goes on, and their family members and their church members are being killed by the Romans, for refusing to go along with this Roman emperor worship and the minds of those early Christians going back to this text. Remember who the first disciples worshipped. It wasn't Rome. It was the one who declared he had authority over heaven and earth and demonstrated as much by rising from the grave that was sealed by Rome itself. Their minds would be continually drawn back here. And not only that, it's this is a foretaste of what's to come. Because what are the disciples going to be doing? They're, they're going out into the nations, and in particularly the nations of Rome, and they're going to preach the gospel, and they're going to make disciples, and they're actually going to conquer the Roman Empire with the gospel over the next several centuries of church history. So Christ's claim to authority is now leading its way into this great commission. And what's the great commission? Basically, the great commission is go out into the old, all the world and tell everyone what to do. And here he says the authority that they have to do that. It's come from the one who has authority over heaven and earth, which is Jesus himself. Because he's about to instruct the disciples to teach and baptize the entire world. Look, as we look at wrapping this up, we've, I've shown you this reunion, this beautiful reunion in Galilee and the mountain, this lovely act of worship that the disciples have even as they doubted, and then in their worship, Jesus drawing near to them and offering them this, these words of assurance that yes, he's the one they thought he was. He's the one he claimed he was. He's the one they hoped he was. He has authority. He is the Messiah who has come to liberate them. You need to remember this passage. And you need to contrast it with what happened with Satan in chapter 4. Satan, claiming to have political power over the world, told, basically told Jesus, if you lick my boot, I'll give you some cultural capital. And Jesus is demonstrating to us here, that's not how you conquer the nations. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't conquer the nations by bowing down to Caesar or bowing down to earthly governments. The church of Jesus Christ conquers nations by declaring the supremacy of Jesus Christ and being willing to suffer for it. That's how it's done. It's not done by the world's wisdom and political action and compromise. 
It's done by the declaration that Christ himself is Lord and we will bow to no other. That's it. The preaching of his gospel. He is Lord. If you don't bow to him, you will burn. But if you bow to him, you receive full pardon for your sin. And if you want us to suffer for it, we will. But this is how we conquer as Christians. This is how God's people have always conquered. And this is how the disciples conquered Rome. And if you want to conquer this community or this province or this country, this is what you're going to sign up for. Wholehearted allegiance to Christ. Not 1% left over for you. He is king and he has rightfully sitting on the throne right now. And when we go out into the world to make disciples, we're simply taking back what's his. It's already his. What's he say here? He has jurisdiction over the whole thing. Authority, supreme. Everywhere, not just in your hearts, not just in your churches, but in the courts, in the legislatures, in the businesses, in the school, everywhere, he has supremacy. There's nowhere in this world that he doesn't have supremacy. It's not his jurisdiction. King Jesus is the rightful ruler of the nations. It's an illusion for governments. It's an absolute illusion for governments to think or give you the perception that they are somehow ultimately in control of everything. And they do this all the time. They can do it for climate crisis. They can do it for contagions. You name it. If you don't have God, your ultimate God is going to be the government. That's exactly what the Caesar did. And Christ here is standing up and he's saying, look, there's only one hope for the nations. It's not your cute little plans. It's not your compromising. It's not your politics. It's Christ. We're living in a world where the, the, the governing authorities will lie right to your face. We're in it deep right now. And they don't care. And the only way out of this, it's not going to the godless liberals and it's not going to the godless conservatives and it's not going to the godless people's party. It's going to Christ himself. He will restore what the locusts have eaten. And that comes through repentance. King Jesus on the throne. And the great commission in this pronouncement, in this claim, is promised, which points to a level of optimism in carrying it out. The church, as the church goes forward into the nations to take back what is rightfully Christ's, there ought to be with us a level of optimism because we bring with us resurrection power. There's a level of optimism in this. And the exaltation of Christ came by suffering, not by bootlicking. And let that be a lesson to the church. Oh, we're just going to try and make them happy, make them like us. No, we don't bootlick. Christ didn't bow to Satan to get the nations. Christ suffered to get the nations. And this is how it is with the church. The exaltation of Jesus Christ comes by the faithful suffering of Christ in this passage 
And the advancement of the church comes by the suffering of the church. And you know what? As I look at this, I know Jesus is powerful. And the more powerful I know him to be, the less powerful I know myself to be. And the less powerful I know myself to be and the more powerful I know him to be, the more I want of him and less of me. Less of me. Why wouldn't we draw near to God in prayer? Our first answer to our problems ought not to be take it into our own hands and see how we can figure it out. We're not a bunch of little messiahs here. The answer to our problems is to turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins so that we can have all of Christ, who himself has all the nations. And we should turn to him and worship and give him praise. Why? Well, as he declares to us here, he's worth it. He's worthy. Who else is worthy of all of our praise? than the one who has authority over not just all the earth, but of all the heavens.